Good morning. If you had your Bibles open to Psalm 56, uh, you can keep them there. If not, uh, you can get turned over there. Um, we don't have internet this morning, so if you normally follow along on your phone and you don't have it downloaded where you can access it, we've got a few Bibles up here, or the scriptures will be uh, on the screen. Or I guess you can jump on your cellular network. I'm about to show my age and be like, well, the Wi-Fi's out, so you don't have any way to access the internet. Um, I'm not 40 yet. I'm working on it, though. So today, we're going to be uh, in Psalm 56. And as we unpack Psalm 56 today, as I was preparing for this message today, I was comforted uh, by the fact, and I hope one of my prayers for us uh, today is that we would be comforted by the fact that someone who in our mind's eye holds such an esteemed place uh, in, in the scriptures, David, King David, uh, would willfully admit that he's afraid. Um, and I think that that is something I'm praying and hoping uh, will be something that would bring us great comfort. Uh, not because uh, fear wins, but because fear is an honest response to a very limited human understanding of what's going on uh, in the world. And so my prayer for us today is that we would be encouraged by David's words. In 1978, Susie Davis was in class when she witnessed one of her 13-year-old classmates come into her classroom and shoot her teacher dead. In 2015, she wrote a memoir entitled, Unafraid, Trusting God in an Unsafe World. And in a section of the book, she writes the following. I'm wondering, what are the things in your life God could have stopped but didn't? What was it that spun out of control to create the fears in your life? Was it personal? Did you experience something hard or painful? Or did something happen to someone close to you? Maybe your dad got cancer and died when you were 25. Or your sister was raped in college. Or maybe it's not personal at all. Maybe you can't help but watch the news from around the world and your heart breaks for all the horrible things people have to endure. Yes, I feel it too. The broken world caving in on us. And sometimes, if I'm honest, it feels as if God is breaking a thousand tiny promises. There's just too much going on in our lives that doesn't seem like plans for good and not for disaster. It feels as if God turns his head away for a millisecond and someone's world falls apart. Sometimes mine, I bet sometimes yours too, and that's scary. It feels as though God has somehow abandoned us. I felt abandoned that May day in 1978, like God turned his head and my world crushed into pieces. I still loved God after the murder. I really did. But I didn't feel like I could trust him. David, in Psalm 56, gives us a prayer to help for when we are sure of our love for God, but fear has brought us to the point of struggling to trust God. David shows us that we must name our fears. We must declare our trust in God and his word. We must pray and ask God to remove the threat of evil. And in the midst of all of that, we must worship as we wait for God to answer us. My prayer for us today is that our wavering trust, perhaps even this morning, would be steadied and solidified by anchoring our hearts to the truths of the gospel. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge that we live in a world that is marred and broken by sin. And there are things that happen that we wish you would have stopped. There are moments we find ourselves questioning, not necessarily our love for you, but how do we continue to trust when we prayed, when we asked, when we, when we sought you, and still something happened. Still there was fear that was introduced to our lives. Still there was this doubt that crept in of your loving us, yes, but can we be fully trusting in you? We just aren't sure anymore. 
So God, as we unpack Psalm 56, David gives us a blueprint for understanding how to follow you, how to pursue you, how to put fear in its rightful place. Not because the presence of fear is somehow a a mark of a lack of faith, but how to put fear in its rightful place so that we would see it not as the dominating theme in our life, but we would see it as something that is subjected even to you. And God, that we would consider the cross and in considering the cross and the fullness of your love poured out in that moment that would settle our trust in you. As Paul writes, if you were willing to give up your own son to redeem us, how much more will you not give us everything that we need? So God, it takes faith to trust in that. It takes faith to trust in that when it feels like our world has fallen apart. It takes faith to trust in that when it feels as if you've broken from our perspective a thousand tiny promises. So God, this morning we pray our trust will be restored, that our love would be rekindled, and then we would leave this place today on the sure and steady ground of the gospel. In Jesus' name. Amen. David writes in the first seven verses, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape. In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. David, in this particular psalm, finds himself between a rock and a hard place. It's one of the eight or nine psalms that are directly related to an actual historical event in David's life. When David writes this psalm, on the one hand, he is running from King Saul. Saul is the king over Israel that the prophet Samuel first anointed to be the king when the people asked for a king. And Saul betrays his right to be king, and so God picks another. And it is David who is called in from the sheep fields and is anointed by Samuel to serve as the coming king of Israel when Saul is removed. But Saul, like most kings of that time, had a desire to maintain his power for as long as possible. And when you want to maintain your power as long as possible, you seek to eliminate the threats to your power. And so Saul begins to plot and to plan on how it is that he can end David's life to secure his hold on the throne a little while longer. Thus, for some time, David's life has been in danger. On the other hand, David's running from Saul has led him back to Gath and the land of the Philistines. The Philistines remember David as the one who struck down Goliath. They are aware of the song sung of David by the Israelites. They would sing, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And yet exhausted and out of options, David finds himself seeking refuge from Saul's pursuit in the land of his enemies. This background helps set the stage for the worn down, out of options, and scared David that we encounter in the psalm before us. What's led David to this point is no sin on David's part. David didn't ask to be pulled from the sheep pen and anointed the next king of Israel. 
what David is seeing work out around him is the evil desires and the evil intent of men's hearts. Both Saul's heart to take his life, and now the Philistines have captured him, and they are in no way wanting to hold him around, keep David around for the betterment of their kingdom. David, in faith and in his best understanding, has done only what he knows is the next thing to do. One foot in front of the other without sinning against God, and yet this is where he finds himself. And maybe that's you this morning. There's no sin that you're aware of, but it seems like everywhere you go, every step you take, you look around and you find yourself backed into a corner. That nothing has gone the way you thought that it would. That you're trying to be obedient, to obey God's commands and follow His plan for your life, and yet it feels like all of a sudden you're backed into a corner. You find yourself looking around going, well, I can't go where I would normally go for help. And now all of a sudden I'm surrounded by my enemies. What in the world is God doing now? Where is he? And that's what David writes this psalm in response to. So in the first part of verse 1, David asks God to be gracious to him. Notice that's what David opens the psalm with. Be gracious to me, O God. David is seeking the unmerited gift of divine favor in his life to deliver him from the threats posed by his enemies. He cannot turn to Saul who seeks his life and no other foreign power is going to intervene in back-channel diplomatic communication to free David from the position he's in. David is on his own. Every option exhausted. And so David says, be gracious to me, O God. David knows he has no other options. It's not his strength he can trust. It's not his budding military prowess that he can trust. He's not been surrounded by the men that would follow him as he's on the run from Saul. It's David in the camp of the Philistines. And he says, the only option I have left is that God would move in my life by grace. That's what he asked him for. David once again models that whether we're in our how long moments or whether we're praying for forgiveness or whether we're praying that the desires for God would be stirred in us again, David models for us that the best way to begin praying is to pray that God would continue to be who he has said he will be. David asks God to be gracious because he knows it's part of God's character to be gracious. So that's what David asked for. And then in the latter half of verse 1 through verse 2 and in verses 5 and 6, David recounts to God the actions, the attitudes, and the desires of his enemies. David is weak and feeling defeated. Even small, frail enemies now seem too much for him. David, of all things we would expect him to admit, admits he is afraid. Sometimes in life we need to admit we too are worn out with no viable way forward, we are exhausted, and we're scared. You don't know the answer to how everything in life is going to turn out. We fret, we plan, we prepare, and I'm not saying any of those things are wrong. But eventually, our limited understanding of what comes next butts up against the reality of what we're experiencing, and in those moments, it's natural for fear to come in. It's natural to have moments where everything we've tried, everything we've prayed, everything we've said seems to not work. It's as if God, as the opening illustration said, it's as if God has turned his back on us for just a millisecond. It feels like the world is crumbling around us. If you're David and you've had to run back to the Philistines, perhaps you feel in that moment 
that God has turned his back on you, even if but for a moment. And it's okay for us to feel that way too. We don't know everything. We have access to unbelievable amounts of knowledge on our phones. We can pull up and answer almost any question we have that we face in our day-to-day lives. But the one thing that we can't always account for is how life goes. And it's in those moments when life doesn't go the way we expect, when we find ourselves worn out and exhausted and afraid, that we have to remember that the first thing we do is we pray for God to be gracious to us because of what we're facing and what we're experiencing. But find the comfort here in David's words. He gives voice to all his enemies are doing, that they trample him, that they pursue him. They're watching every step David makes to say, now we can get him. Now we will take his life. David is aware that all eyes are on him to screw up, to make a mistake. This is what David says in verses 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? David models for us that an acknowledgement of fear isn't an admission of defeat or representative of a lack of faith. Just as doubt in the life of a believer is not an admission of a lack of faith or defeat, so it is that the presence of fear is not an admission of failure or of lacking faith. Rather, by addressing the fear present in his life, David is given a chance to remember the God who is greater than his fears. When we fail to acknowledge our fears in our life, we diminish the size of God in our belief in him. If we never acknowledge our fears to God, then we are admitting we don't trust God's ability to be bigger and stronger and deliver us from those fears. When we are afraid, what we reach for, what we focus on, and what we worship is what we believe is bigger, stronger, and able to overcome our fears. So when we fear something, like David is afraid now, what our hearts go to first is what we're trusting in for salvation. What our hearts go towards first begins to be what we depend on to deliver us from our fears. So David says, when I am afraid. Now, they were probably new. I'm probably going to be afraid again in my life. Probably in a one-and-done situation with my fears. So David says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. Why? Because God is the only one big enough to deliver him from the position he finds himself in. And what it does is it rightly resizes our fears. Admitting our fears to God, giving voice to our fears, in no way diminishes the size of God. It actually, in faith, what we do when we admit our fears is it causes us to elevate and regain a proper perspective on who God is. And it diminishes our fears, doesn't erase them, doesn't get rid of them, but we are, we are able to see our fears through the lens of the power and the greatness and the majesty of our God. And that's what David does here. And David grounds his trust in the remembrance of God's word. David wasn't hauling around a backpack full of scrolls with the first five books of the law written down. David knew some of the stories. I don't know how much David knew, but here's what David had heard. 
David had heard the words of Samuel when he was anointed king. These are the words that David is trusting in, that what God has said would be true of David will be true. Samuel comes to him in 1 Samuel 16, and he anoints him. And he speaks the words of God over David, telling him he will be the next king of Israel. Therefore, David, in the midst of his fears, remembers God's word and finds himself in a place of trust. Why is that? Because given the character of God and the promises of God and the power of God, he will not break his word. If God breaks his word, God breaks his character. And we've got a whole nother issue on our hands. David is remembering a very specific moment along with whatever else he knew of the scriptures at that time. But he's holding on to the trust in God's word based off of what Samuel spoke over him. How much more should our confidence be in God's word because we have all of the scriptures before us? We're not just basing it off of a random prophet showing up at our house and speaking blessing over us. I don't think that's happened to any of you. Maybe it has. I don't know. We have the fullness of God's word disclosed in the scriptures. If we're going to put our trust in God when we're afraid, we need to know the word of God as a means to remind us of the character of God. And when we're reminded of the character of God, then we're reminded that God won't break his word. So it all fits together so that our remembrance and our trust in God and our trust in his word works together to give us a firm footing in the face of our fears that God is who he said he is. We know that by his word and we know that God won't change because God won't break his word and notice how quickly David's mindset and outlook changes he goes when I am afraid I put my trust in you in God whose word I praise and God I trust then I shall not be afraid what can flesh do to me enemies who once seemed overwhelming are viewed as such no longer can the enemies of David still do him harm absolutely David was not somehow miraculously released in this moment and walked out of the Philistine camp untouched. There was still the chance for the Philistines to do great harm to David, yes. But could they defeat him? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I love the illustration John Piper uses of fear and the presence of sin and the attacks of the enemy in the life of believers. John Piper says that it is like being bitten by a defanged snake. If a snake has its fangs, it has its ability to inject poison into you and to deliver great harm to you. But if a snake has been devenomized and defanged, it doesn't matter how loud it rattles its tail, doesn't matter how wide out it pushes its hood, it can do nothing, John Piper says, other than gum you. And he does a, nobody fears a snake with no fangs. Because of the cross, the enemy of our souls, Satan has been defanged. He cannot get to you anymore. He can gum you to death. He can aggravate you. He can still inflict harm to you. But he cannot defeat you because he has nothing to come against you with. Because all your sin, all the accusation, everything that he would be able to bring against you has been handled on the cross. And so, yes, can our enemy still get to us? Absolutely. 
But can the enemy defeat us? No. Even death no longer defeats us. Death delivers us because of the finished work of Christ. So there is nothing, nothing in the grand scheme of things that will ultimately defeat us because Christ has defeated Satan, sin, and the grave. And so we take the confidence of David in Psalm 56, we root it in the truths of the gospel, and we say even more confidently, what can flesh do to me? I shall not be afraid. But we still fear, and that's okay. We still fear because we don't know how everything will work out. We still fear because sometimes what is our worst fear comes true. But even our worst fears coming true does not trump the truth of what God has done for us in Jesus. And so even if our worst fears comes true, our greatest blessings have also been proven true because of Christ. And we can no longer be ultimately removed from God's presence. We can no longer be eternally separated from him. We are secure. And then David prays this in 56.7. For their crime will they escape in wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. David trusts that not only will God protect him, but that he will deliver him from his enemies by bringing them to an end. There are times when the correct prayer of God's people is that he would stop the hearts of evil people and bring them to an end. Sometimes the correct response in prayer is that God would stop the heart of an evil person so that they can no longer inflict evil in the world. As believers, we pray, God, convert their heart or stop their heart. What David is praying for is that God's justice would be done in this situation. We don't pray these prayers lightly, and we don't pray them frequently. But it is a prayer that should be prayed based off of God's character as being perfectly holy, righteous, just, and merciful. At the end of the day, one of the things we have to recover in the church today is honest prayers that God would end the evil in the world. Because here's what's going to happen when Christ returns. All the evil is going to be dealt with. Perfect justice will be administered. And everyone who is outside of Christ will be dealt with justly. They will pay the penalty for their sins. So yes, we share the gospel so that everyone will be brought in so that people would have a chance to hear and confess and repent and be brought into the family and have their sins forgiven and enjoy eternity with Christ. But we also know and acknowledge that not everyone will believe that there's coming a day when every evil person, and it's hard to think in these terms, but anyone who is outside of Christ is hostile, the scriptures tell us, to God. And that means that on the day of Christ's return, when perfect justice is administered, all evil people will be cast down. Doesn't matter the good they do in the community, doesn't matter the charities they enact, doesn't matter any of the good things that we know that they've done. If there are people outside of Christ, They face eternal separation and eternal punishment. So when we pray for Christ to return, and we should be praying for Christ to return, we need to have our hearts tender and acknowledge that we're also praying that evil people would be stopped. And that's not just the Hitlers and the Putins of the world. That's everyone who lives life opposed to God and his ways. 
And so David says, God, in your justice, don't let them escape. And at the end of the day, one of the things that gives us great comfort and great hope in the gospel is this, is that perfect justice will be administered. That in eternity, no injustice gets overlooked. No injustice gets bypassed. No evil gets excused. It's all dealt with justly and righteously. When evil goes off in the world and we find ourselves afraid, one of the things we rest in is this, that there will be eternal, perfect justice administered. And if you've ever confronted evil in this life, you know what it is to pray that that would actually happen. You know what it is to pray and trust and believe. If you've suffered evil at the hands of someone else, you pray that God in justice would eliminate all evil. That's a hard prayer to pray. It's a prayer we pray with. We pray with caution and tenderness of heart. But if we're going to follow David's lead, we pray that at the end of the day that God would return and that all evil would be removed. David goes on and writes in Psalm 56, 8 through 13, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. David trusts in God as an antidote to his fears. In verses 3 and 4. But then in verse 8, David confesses. You have kept count of my tossing, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And this provides the other part of the antidote to our fears. The nearness to, awareness of, and care for our lives by God. On the one hand, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere all at once. We'll talk about this in a few weeks when we look at Psalm 139. There's nowhere you can go that God is not. And God is transcendent, meaning he's outside of our ability to fully experience, perceive, or grasp. But on the other hand, God is imminent. That is on some level, though not fully, he is able to be experienced, perceived, and grasped. That is, God draws near enough to hear us and to count our tears. He keeps record of our prayers and the wrongs done against us. Think for a moment on the comfort this brought David and should bring to us in the middle of our fears. Here is the all-powerful God who we are depending on to overcome our enemies, bending low in tenderness and grace to care for us. David says, you've kept count of my tossings. Think about the attention to detail God has to have in your life to count the tossings on your bed. Think about the gentleness of God to be able to collect your tears, to know that you are crying and to put your tears in a bottle. David says, not only is God powerful enough to defeat my enemies and cast them down, but my soul also rests in the middle of my fears in this reality. God is near to me. So near that he can count my tossings and so gentle with me that he can collect my tears in a bottle. 
what great comfort to know that when it feels like our world is caving in on us, that God is near. He's big enough that we would sing, he holds the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. And yet those same hands can reach down and wipe the tears off your face. This is the nearness of God that we long for. And David's writing it without the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now think about the nearness of God to us. The nearness of God that in Christ's death and resurrection and ascension and sending of the Spirit, God is no longer, not only is he out there, but now he's in here. What does Jesus say? I'll never leave you or forsake you. He's there. So even the tears that never make it out of our eyes, God counts and God knows. The Spirit doesn't leave in our tossings. The Spirit stays. God bends low in tenderness and grace and care for us. So much more now on this side of the cross with the full giving of the Spirit. David then reiterates in verses 10 and 11 what he has said earlier in verse 4. That his trust and confidence is rooted in the word of the Lord. David is so certain of the Lord's deliverance that he promises that he will fulfill his vows and thank offerings. David says, this I know at the end of verse 9, that God is for me. If you are in Christ, God is for you, not against you. He's collecting your tears. He's not building a case of your transgressions against you. He is for you today, right where you're at. He was for you in your sins because he sent Jesus to die before you could be forgiven. He knew the fullness of who you were, and he still sent his son to die for you. Jesus is for you. God is for you. David knew in some way that God was for him because he had been anointed king. But David also wrote in such a way that this points forward to the reality of the cross to go now look and understand the fullness of God's being for you. If he offered up his son, he is fully in your corner. God doesn't waver in his thoughts about us. God isn't one day pleased with us because we did more good than bad, and he's not one day over sulking in a corner because we forgot to talk to him. God is for us. David says, this I know. God is for me. If fear isn't going to overwhelm us, then we need to know. Not that God's for the person to my right or to my left. Not that God is for my parents or for my grandparents. Not that God is for this other person or that person. You need to know and be settled in your heart that God is for you. And like any good parent, being for someone doesn't always mean that you stop every bad thing from happening. What we experience in life, what we experience, always has to be filtered through the reality of the cross. God is for us. 
And sometimes in his providence and in his sovereignty and in his grace, he doesn't stop the bad things from happening. But it does not change that he is for you. David says, you think they would write that in another psalm, right? Like not when he's surrounded by his enemies. This is the level of faith we need to be pursuing in our life. That when our enemies surround, David goes, this I know, God is for me. And if you were standing on the outside looking in at David's situation, you go back in time, you hop out of the time machine and you look, you'd be like, David, how can you say that? There's nothing around here that looks like God is for you. David says, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? The ESV Study Bible notes, the singer David in Psalm 56, 12, and 13 expresses his confidence that if God is for him, in verse 9, it is as good as done. God has delivered his soul from death. The vows and thank offerings are varieties of the peace offerings that celebrate God's answer to prayer. And you can read about that in Psalm 54, 6, Leviticus 7, 15 through 16. David says, I'm going to offer the offerings to you, God, that are representative of prayers being answered. David hasn't been delivered yet, but he's so sure of God being for him that he says, when I'm out of this, this is what I'm going to do. I'm offering the offerings that represent that a prayer was heard and a prayer was answered. David has a rock-solid confidence, even in the middle of his fears, that God will hear and that God will deliver. Not only that, but the thank offerings were some of the only offerings under the Old Testament sacrificial system that allowed the worshiper, that is the one offering the sacrifice, to enjoy the communal meal associated with the offering. So what David is saying is, God, I'm confident in you. You're for me. You're going to deliver me. When you do, I'm going to offer these offerings. But David doesn't just say he's going to offer any offering. The Thanksgiving offering he's going to bring allows him to linger in God's presence to enjoy communion with the God who delivered him. To rest outside of the confines of the stress of this moment in the presence of God. David had no desire just to tip his cap and thanks and go on about his life. And oftentimes when we are delivered, when God hears and answers our prayers in the midst of our fears, We struggle to want to then linger with him, to enjoy him, to spend time with the God who delivered us. We offer a cursory thank you, and then we go on with our life until the next time we need God to intervene because our fears overwhelm us. David says the only way to continue to grow and develop so that you can keep your fears in their right place is to linger and enjoy the presence of the God who continues to deliver you. And this was David's life. This is what David wanted. This is why the scriptures say that David was a man after God's own heart. The one thing, if you read the entirety of the Psalms that David wrote, what becomes clear is one thing. David longed for and desired to be in the presence of God. And he says, if you're for me and you deliver me, I'm bringing you a thanks offering. 
And I'm bringing you a Thanksgiving offering because I want to be able to linger and enjoy the meal and enjoy being in your presence. And I wonder how often our faith will be strengthened if when we had answered prayers, we went back and we just lingered and enjoyed God's presence instead of rushing off to whatever was next. David discloses his desire to be in God's presence when he closes with this, that his desire is to walk before God in the light of life. Over against the darkness of the grave or the valley of the shadow of death, David says, I want to walk before God in the light of life. And this is what we are promised this side of the resurrection. As Paul writes in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, He, Jesus, he God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And Jesus himself said that I am the light of the world. We have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. We participate now partially in what we will one day know fully. And that is walking before God in the light of life because we are in Christ. But the fullness, the fullness of Psalm 56 will only be realized when Christ returns. John writes in Revelation 21 verse 4 and then 22 through 25. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Tears, death, mourning, crying, pain, all encapsulate the worst of our fears. John says, there'll be no more. There'll be no more fear. And then he goes on to say this. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. The fullness of Psalm 56 awaits us on the other side of this life. Beginning from here to there means that we will encounter fears yet again. And again. And again. And there will even be those moments where perhaps we know that death is on its way for us. And we may fear death in those moments. And that's okay. God's overcome the grave. God is for us. We have nothing to fear. But that doesn't mean that we can't get stuck. So here's what I want to offer you in closing. Christina Vinson writes in her book, God's Peace When You Can't Sleep, the following. The land of what ifs is a tempting place to dwell. It is also a dangerous place to be. Before you even pull the covers back, your mind is racing with questions. What if I choke up during the meeting tomorrow? What if my child is diagnosed with learning disabilities? What if the test result comes back positive? What if I don't get the job? There are countless what-if scenarios, both big and small, but they have one thing in common. They don't help. 
While you're lying in bed trying to gear down for the day, your mind is worrying, spinning every possible negative scenario into a sticky, all-consuming web. You get trapped in it. And you spend hours burrowing deeper and deeper with nothing positive to show for it. In fact, you are so imprisoned in this web that you're paralyzed with fear, anxiety, and panic. All because of two simple words, what if. The land of what ifs is tempting, but it is also trouble. It is living out anxiety in our minds, hyping ourselves up to frightening, stressful scenarios that may never come true. It places ourselves in the role of God and relegates the Lord elsewhere. In short, it's a place that Christians need to fight against. And perhaps the most subtle threat of fear in our life is to trap us in the what-ifs. To trap us in the what-ifs that seek to elevate us into the place of God in our life. It's okay to ask what if this happens and what if it goes this way or that way. But often what our what ifs indicate is what we're afraid God may fail to do in our life. Because we very rarely struggle to spin a positive what if. We struggle to spin a positive what if scenario. Like what if I go to the gas station tomorrow and gas is 69 cents a gallon? Or what if I win the mega millions? Like we don't, we don't deal in those realities what if always preys on our fears to ask us, and look, I believe this, I believe the what ifs are the enemy's subtle way of asking us the very same thing he asked Eve in the garden. Can you really trust God? The what ifs bathed in fear are the enemy's subtle attempt to paralyze you right where you are. He knows he cannot remove you from the kingdom, but in the what-ifs that are founded in our fears, he can render you ineffective. And so today, we take the fullness of Psalm 56, and we fight against the land of what-ifs by repeating to ourselves and our fears, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. Let's pray. God, we are grateful this morning for the truth of Psalm 56, for the truth of your words to us. It is okay to be afraid. David, the king of your people, the one who had a heart that was after you, struggled with fear. We are not immune to fear in our lives today. But when fear comes, when we're surrounded, when we're weak, when we're exhausted, when we've got nothing left to give, God, then would we cry out for you to be gracious to us. We remind ourselves of the truth of your word. Would we, would we know, not think, but know that you are for us? And God, as we see you answer prayer after prayer after prayer in our life, as we look back over the last six months or six years or ten years and we see how you've answered prayers, will we find it a means by which we are drawn to linger in your presence? And Lord, in the restless nights when the tears won't stop and the tossings won't stop, we trust that you're there counting. You're not far away. You're right there with us, collecting tears and counting tossings. Will we be comforted by your nearness to us? Will we trust in you? Will we find our hearts at rest, even in the midst of the fears that we may be battling, will we find our hearts at rest in the truth of the gospel? That because of the finished work of Jesus, there is nothing 
nothing that can absolutely defeat us. Things can harm us, yes. But victory has been secured in Christ. Would we rest in that this morning? In Christ's name, amen. So come to a time of response.